welcome to Doc Student 101, a podcast where we discuss the necessary skills and unique challenges of doctoral education with your hosts, Dr. Lania Rademacher, Dr. Peter Williams, and Dr. Scott Self. Hey, everybody. Good morning, Scott and Peter. I'm glad to talk to you guys again. Um, today, we're going to talk a little bit about feasibility and specifically in relationship to one's dissertation. Um, if you're lucky, and if you're a student at in our program, you're you are lucky in this way. Uh, you know, you have to think about dissertation early in your uh, doctoral program. Many programs now are giving students, even from their first term, an opportunity to think about what would be my what would I like to to observe. And so, if you can get if you can be thinking about that as early as uh, your first term then it's probably a good idea to be thinking about feasibility at the same time, right? Be thinking about oh, the scope, the size, whether you have access to um, uh, to a population, what does the literature say is necessary? And then I think even uh, asking some deeper questions and some harder questions about your own perceptions of what's on the other side of your dissertation. Um, so, Linnea, uh, was, it was not your experience to start thinking about this uh, dissertation on first term? No, I mean, uh, I was just so enamored of grad school and, um, you know, entered and was taking class after class and thought, oh my gosh, where has this been all my life, right? Uh, and and sitting in classes with these amazing professors and, and talking with my uh, colleagues, I could have been a professional student. Now, I had, I had friends in the program who knew when they entered, I'm going to stay this and I'm going to do this and blah, blah, blah. I didn't know. And so I just kept taking class and classes and classes. I loved research until, uh, you know, my chair said, you need to choose something and get out of here. <laughs> she was very gentle. You must go now. But she said, she said, come on, you got to, what do you want to know? I don't know. Yeah. So it t- took me a while. It took me about, because I hadn't thought of it before, it took me about four months to really zero in on a topic and focus. And that's unfortunate. So, yeah, my first attempt, I had no clue uh, really what I was going to be doing when I finished coursework. Um, I, and I think at, at that point, I was too young and too naive. Um, my last time I did, I did know day one, I had a pretty good idea of what my research questions were. And uh, wh- while they evolved uh, during my coursework and, and uh, even evolved up to and through my, um, my defense, my proposal defense, I still um, had a, a stronger sense. And, and one of the things I appreciate about the way that our program uh, at our university is designed is that students are challenged to think about that, e- even if it feels a little artificial, might not quite have the vocabulary that they need or the jargon or the perspective that they need. It is nice to be able to be thinking about dissertation early on. And if, if you're listening to this and you're not thinking about your, your research topic, it's probably a good idea to go ahead and start, you know, go ahead and think about what you would like to investigate even, uh, and, and even ask questions about its feasibility as you're doing that. Yeah. And we, and, and we try as faculty to, to push you to think about all of these things. Um, you know, we have a number of touch points. We, 
we talk about a research problem in an early class 701, and then we have students do a very brief 150-word um, declaration of a research problem, and I give feedback on, to all the students on those. And my feedback is usually about this is a good general problem, or it's not a problem at all. You're, you're giving me the purpose of what you want to do for your dissertation, but you need to back up and say why that's significant. What mm -hmm. is the problem that needs to be explored that requires you to want to do this? And so, because that's what you're going to have to do. We've got a whole class devoted to this problem statement and getting that focus in there. But the feasibility part, um, I think, is unique because uh, it it implies a number of things. And so hopefully we can talk about those today. Yeah. And uh, so we, I think we're already kind of hinting at this idea of focus, aren't we? Or this, the, the scope, whether a project, a dissertation project is trying to do too much in one, one single project. Um, right. I mean, Peter, it's, it's quite, it's quite easy for a student to think about a dissertation where they're going to look at you know, all the different facets that surround a problem and have a hard time thinking about just looking at one of those facets, right? Yeah. I mean, part of it is that a lot of doc students these days haven't done any field research, so don't uh, really understand how complex just investigating one aspect of something can be and how mm -hmm. big a project it can be. And so that plays into the challenge of making it feasible from a focus point of view, but also I find that a lot of students, they have a problematic situation in an organization or in a community, and that's what they think the research problem is. Mm -hmm. And the conversation I often have with them is that, okay, that's a problematic situation that causes some tension or some felt need. That's not necessarily a research problem, but you can look at it in some facet of that problematic situation, something that's not working well in practice in an organization, for example. Some aspect of that might benefit from, um, from research, but that requires that you get close and look and, and start to distinguish and differentiate among all the various aspects of it. And so that it helps to gradually build your vocabulary about how do you kind of theorize about the reality that you find yourself in. I mean, we could come up with an example, the most common example that, you know, I'll, I'll hear it. And I know you guys do too. Uh, teacher attrition. It's like a mm -hmm. teacher turnovers. A student one time was like, um, we'll investigate teacher turnovers. It's like, okay, so that's a problematic situation, but you know, We've actually been investigating that since the early 60s. You're right. Maybe even longer, but that's when, you know, so what is it we don't know yet? I mean, we don't practice all we know, but what is it we don't know? Because that's what research does is it helps us understand something better that we don't understand well enough. So, Yeah, right. and to, and to, the, to think about, like, for an example – Using your example of teacher attrition, the student oftentimes will say, well, I'm going to interview principals, I'm going to interview parents, I'm going to interview uh, students, I'm going to interview uh, you know, school board members. And they're thinking about all of the different um, angles or facets of that problem. 
instead of identifying one and drilling down within that. I mean, if you're talking about multiple populations, that's a good indication that you probably um, have already already need to focus um, focus more because that that multiple populations can present some significant challenges uh, to a design. The the phenomenon of attrition, employee attrition, is is multifaceted and even in and of itself. I had a good quote a while back. I forgot where it came from, but it was something like ignorance expands or increases with distance. So the farther you get away from a phenomenon, the simpler mm-hmm. it is. The closer mm-hmm. you get to it, the more complex it becomes. And, you know, we've experienced this with almost anything. So the closer you get to something, you realize, oh, wow, there's a lot going on here with, say, even a person's um, decision, um, inclination to leave employment. What are the individual things that go on? What is intention to leave? What is um, workplace employee engagement? And so there's a lot of words that you learn as you start looking at Something like that. I think, too, that sometimes students start with something like that because they have looked at a problem in their context like teacher attrition. Um, And there's something deeper going on in that setting. And the conversations that I have, I have one who's doing that right now. Um, She started with just talking about teacher attrition, but through um, much work, it's come down to the realization that they are addressing teacher attrition in the district that she wants to study. And they've created this teacher mentoring program. So I'm like, okay, well, you're not really starting with teacher attrition. That's kind of the general frame under which you've created this program. And now you want to see if it's helping teachers and in what way and what are the, so you're doing really a program evaluation. Um, and uh, having those conversations with your chair and with your faculty are really important to help you get away from that mm-hmm. that big bubble. Mm-hmm. And the other part, of course, Peter, is getting into the research literature, which we've talked about a lot. And one thing I always recommend to students is make that appointment with the reference librarian, get in there and have them help you find primary peer-reviewed research on this topic that's the best place to look current research what do we still not know go to that recommendations for future research section what do we not know what do we still need to know what's going to happen if we don't know this what are the problems that the researchers have identified that their research didn't address yeah no and i appreciate you saying that the the this oftentimes being in the literature will illustrate the degree to which granularity is treasured and valued within scholarship, right? I mean, you you start to realize that while folks are looking at very, very specific elements, very specific uh, points uh, of interest within this broader topic, yeah, being in the literature gives you a real opportunity to see just how specific, uh, just how specifically these things are actually investigated. Uh, and I will oftentimes say to a student, I don't think you need to write more. I think you need to read more. Well, that's right. I mean, I think in reading with more of a critical eye in the sense of seeing what, uh, how the previous researchers have focused on a particular aspect and how they got to that aspect. It's not always apparent. Sometime in the, sometimes in the intro part of the, 
um, research report that you read, they 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 talk about how they narrow it down, but often they just justify why they did the study. So sometimes it's um, it's apparent, but you do see how how they focus on a very particular aspect of a phenomenon, and that has to do with feasibility in the sense that you can't investigate everything. You can't answer all the questions about a particular a particular organizational problem or even going back to what you were talking about, Linnea, getting a student to realize, oh, this is probably a program evaluation of this mentoring um, program in a district. But your dissertation may not be a even a comprehensive program evaluation. Yeah. It may just be part of a program evaluation, depending on how deep you go. Because really in research you're going deep on a particular point, not um, surface level and broad. So that's kind of a trade-off that you you make when you when you dig deeply anywhere, then you're making a decision not to go broad. Well, so one of the folk, one of the challenges of feasibility might be focus. I think another uh, another way to look at this is a question of really of access. Do you have access to a certain sample? Um, and I will say that we over, uh, I think students tend to overestimate their ability to access a population. Um, yes, for uh, sure. Right. Um, Sometimes they equate their access as an administrator or a person of power in a setting with their ability to access that population for research. And that's not true. That Those are two separate roles that they have to begin by saying, I'll have access to that because uh, that's part of my job and I can access those documents. Well, you may be able to access them in your work capacity. Think of like FERPA laws or HIPAA laws. You can access those documents in your capacity as a teacher, but that does not mean that you can access those documents in your capacity as a researcher. That's right. And I think there's an ethical ethical dimension to that, isn't there, Linnea? I mean, even accessing a population, it might be that you do have access to them, um, but it might not be ethical for you to have access to them. Yes, might it not, could be perceived really of as coercive or right. undue influence. And um, those are really important considerations, uh, especially if you're working with uh, any vulnerable populations, such as prisoners or children or those mm -hmm. with um, mental or physical incapacitation. So, mm -hmm. Hi, puppy. Yeah, that's Linnea's puppy was was joining us. Uh, no, I think that's really, really important, Linnea, that um, uh, even for non-vulnerable populations, at least not non-vulnerable within the common rule, um, there's still vulnerabilities, right? So if I'm, um, if I'm a manager of a department and I think to myself, well, I manage 100 employees, I can easily get a sample of, uh, you know, of 12 for a qualitative study. What incentives or what expectations do your potential subjects believe uh, they they have? Uh, what sense of responsibility to keep their job or to keep the boss happy do they uh, potentially experience? Those ethical questions may impede your access, even if you definitely have access to those to that population. So yes. The ethical dimension is really important, isn't it? It's a very big one, uh, and I think um, encompasses many of the access problems that people encounter. Um, <clears throat> the other is just 
access from the aspect of whoever's in charge of an organization allowing you in. You know, we get a lot of requests in IRB for people to do research in Chicago public schools or New York City public schools or any of the big districts. Um, they have a lot of barriers. They have yeah. a lot of, and you have to think about those, not just um, making sure you get all the right permissions, but just the the time frame of access. The military, when you're researching in the military, <laughs> you not only have our IRB, and you not only have a military IRB, you have the site permission from the commander, and, and um, the military has their own human research protections office that's <laughs> in addition to maybe the Air Force IRB. So it's a very lengthy process, and you have to think about, do I want to spend six months to a year? I think Chicago, when I was teaching in in, uh, students who were teachers in Chicago public schools, Chicago had one time per year that you could apply to do research in the public schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you want to wait that long? Are you going to be ready by that time? Um, You know, that's definitely something to consider. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say that it's really hard the first time you do research to end to, to, to anticipate all the barriers to access. And that's where, you know, people who've done um, research before can help students, you know, like, say, your chair committee um, or um, colleagues who've gone before you. Um, you want it to be doable. You know, everybody wants it to be doable. And so we sometimes massage the questions we're asking to make them actually achievable and maybe a shorter step towards a goal, a bigger goal of understanding something uh, than what we originally imagined. But because we have to be feasible. That's right. And I and I really appreciate you uh, describing. um, I I don't know when we talked about this, but describing it's. the function of a dissertation as kind of a platform for the fu- for future research rather than one's magnum opus, right? It's not the uh, it's not the final word on a on an issue, but in fact, it is in many ways your starting place for a career of inquiry um, and of rigorous inquiry. And I think it's I think it's fair if you uh, find yourself focused upon one very narrow grain of sand on the beach. It's okay to say now that I I'm going to look at that grain of sand carefully now, and then I'll look at the ones around it in subsequent research, right? And um, and to kind of give yourself room to do uh, other investigations and conduct other inquiry. In the future. So, for example, if you find that if you're really committed to the idea of a um, of a mixed method, why not deal with the research questions that are quantitative and leave qualitative for your subsequent research or vice versa? Right. Why not go ahead and shave off? You don't necessarily have to do a mixed method. In fact, I tried to talk the students out of it, but you don't have to do that in order. You could look more granularly at the one facet of that mixed method if you um, if you would give yourself license to. And one of the ways you can you can give yourself license is to say, and then I'll look at part B later next. Yeah, and I think that that's one way to to focus on um, the particular grain or one particular aspect. Another way to make it feasible is to take it from kind of a universal problem down to a local 
mm. problem. So like in back to Linnea's example of, you know, from teacher attrition down to a particular local mentoring program and mm-hmm. whether it's how it's functioning, what, uh, what influence it's having, how it's interacting with teachers, uh, uh, self-efficacy with their intention to leave with their intention to stay with you know that's that that's one way that moving kind of the unit of analysis that's what we talk about in research is the unit of analysis from very broad and macro down to a more specific local bounded experience mm-hmm. or phenomenon or a program that's down here at my school or in my organization. I mean, as far as a leadership EDD that we teach in, you know, then it becomes a leader skill. You're developing leader skills. How is this working in this organization? And what we come up with may have be a some evidence that contributes to a more universal conversation about how things are in general. But, but that's a that's a pretty good way of making something a bit more feasible is to you know narrowing the scope to local also well um one more area of feasibility that we've uh, thought about discussing today is this the student's own perception of their work um its role in their career its representation in their career um we kind of already hinted at this that it's not you know, the, your, it's not your final work. It's your platform. It's your beginning work. It, it's a, a learning experience that prepares you for a career of inquiry and, and investigation. But what are some common misperceptions you see for students in terms of the way they understand their dissertation related to their career, their future career? I think one of the things uh, is is probably the fault of the way that we set it up. We set up the dissertation, and many programs do, as the capstone assessment of their ability. You, you cannot have a doctorate until you finish this dissertation, and it encompasses, hopefully, all the things that you've learned throughout the program. It is a summative assessment. So we, we paint it as that, but it, it's not going to be the pinnacle research of your career. It's a beginning. It's the first step in your life of inquiry. Whether you do more research or not, or whether you use research to inform your leadership positions, decisions, actions, um, you know, doing your own research project really helps you to understand all of those uh, needs that you can use research for. And so this research project is a learning experience. It's, it's not necessarily primary peer reviewed. It's not going to be the most important research of your career. It just is your beginning and shows you the possibilities of what you can do and what still needs to be done in the field. I like that. I, um, I was, I did my PhD in higher education research and was a, there was a guy in our program. He was only there for a short time, and I don't think he was very serious. Um, but here's evidence of why I don't think he was very serious. He came into the program, and we had we had a course. It was a content course about um, uh, the antecedents of of higher education, of modern higher education, and some of the you know medieval antecedents. It was kind of a histor- historical perspective on higher education. But anyway, 
it was in that course, and it was on one particular evening, he discovered that when he finishes his PhD, his work is not finished. Um, he said, you mean, then I got a, he, he didn't realize that there was, he might be a, an assistant professor. And then if he did his time and did his work, he might be an associate professor. And then if he did his time and he was, um, you know, had earned his contributions to the, to his field, he might be a full professor. And then there were other things that he also needed to be thinking about. And he really believed, he firmly believed that writing his dissertation would be the last thing he has to do. And then he's just Mr. Expert in the universe. And, um, boy, he really did believe his, in, in every way, in every sense of the term, he believed it was the summative experience of his, uh, of his, of his academic career. Um, I think he was an extreme example, but, we really do uh, infer to students that this is a, a summatization, that's easy for me to say, of, um, of their knowledge and of their expertise when, when really we recognize that as kind of the beginning, don't we, Peter? Yeah, I mean, you get to the top of this mountain, to use that analogy, uh, and um, and you realize there are other mountains to climb, and that it was really hard to get to the top of that first one, and you thought it was the only one in the mountain range, but it's at the bottom. It's just a foothill to the next mountain. Yeah. And... You know, and if you if you've managed along the way up that mountain to kind of fall in love with mountain climbing, then then that's kind of a blessing along the way too, because it's what well, the way I describe it. You know, this this assumption that students to go back to kind of the theme of this segment of our feasibility discussion is the you know testing assumptions that that we have. Um, the assumption is that. I'm going to know how to do it once I do this. And it's like, well, you'll know something. You'll know more about how to do it after mm -hmm. having done a piece of research from stem to stern. But um, there's more to learn, too. Um, there are other mountains to climb. And there are other – and you, you fall in love with – I at least in my experience, I, I fell in love with uh, the just the inquiry, the mindset of – exploring things, wondering about things and, and wondering if I could figure out how they worked. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a fascination with that, um, that basic curiosity that was reawakened. Yeah. So, so there wasn't that. just a, a hoop yeah. I was jumping through an academic hoop right. that all these mean professors are making us jump through because they had to jump through it. Now they're going to make us suffer too, but mm -hmm doing this it's, no it, this is inquiry this is trying to figure out how stuff works and that's that can be fascinating yeah i love the and and you all know this about me but i'm a, a, a big proponent of action research and part of it is because of exactly that you know you come to the end of your research and you you have more questions either things that weren't part of your scope or things that were revealed in your research that now i need to know that well if we found this out that makes the implications different for this next question. And so now we need to know that. And your cycle of inquiry is, is really uh, exemplified by lifelong learning. Now what do I need to learn? Now what do I need to know to do this? So the assumption that there is this 
stuff that once I figured out, I got it and I've arrived. And it's, uh, I see it more as a continual process of learning and growth rather than doing it right to get it, to figure it out. Once I figured it out, I'm the expert. I think that's what you're referring to the, Mm -hmm. your college and the program kind of had that mindset. Yeah. You know, um, uh, I think, I think what we're getting at here is that feasibility um, is in many ways a recognition that um, there's only so much one can do in one project. There's only so much that one can do in one's career. There's only so much one can do in one's dissertation. Um, uh, our friend Ben Reese likes to use the term epistemic humility um, to kind of describe the the need to um, – uh, to have a, a little bit of humility in terms of what we know. I, I don't know what his cognate would be here, but it's something similar. A kind of humility, feasibility requires a kind of humility, an ability to say, I can't do everything. I can't solve the world's problems in my dissertation or solve this one big problem in the world in my dissertation. I may not be able to solve anything. What I may be able to do is contribute my small voice to a conversation that existed before me and will exist after me uh, and, uh, and contribute some small element to that, to that larger conversation, that kind of humility, I think, uh, is required in order to actually experience the joy of feasibility, I think. That's very well said, Scott. I like that. Mm-hmm.